listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Midtown. This is our sermon series on the Gospel of Luke. Today's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me or in these wonderful books of Luke that our church handed out to us on the way in. It's on page 22, 22. Hear the word of the Lord. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor, governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iterea and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you were authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Good morning. morning. So good to be with you guys this morning uh, to share God's word. Uh, As mentioned, I am James Fields, long-time friend of your pastor, Jamal. Um, And one of the things I love about Jamal is that uh, he is the same person uh, from back when we met in uh, 2006 to now. A little bit more grayer, right? Um, But that comes from wisdom. Um, But he's the same person, and I'm so grateful that he would entrust me with this awesome privilege to come and 
proclaim God's word to you this morning. Uh, I bring you greetings from Sojourn Carlisle, uh, which is planted out of this church. So we are grateful uh, for your partnership. We're grateful for your prayers. We're thankful, grateful for your giving. Um, we exist because of your generosity and because of your kindness. So I am super excited and thankful to be here uh, this morning. Um, the title for today's sermon is simply this, Knowing Who You Are. And may I add maybe to another Extend that a little little bit. Uh, Knowing who you are and accepting who you're not. Knowing who you are and accepting who you're not. One of the greatest travesties in the local church today is that you can achieve great works in God's name without truly knowing God at all. Jesus puts it this way when he says it in Matthew chapter 7 verse 21. He provides one of the most horrid pictures of this sword reality. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." You see, unlike those who speak for God without actually knowing him, John the Baptist humbly spoke about the God that he both knew and experienced. John spoke as someone who knew his God, as his priest, as his prophet, and yes, even as his preacher. Will you pray with me this morning? Father God, we do love you and thank you. As often, Lord, as I say, um, I don't have much to give, but what I do have, I pray that you would bless it and multiply it. I pray that you would prepare our hearts to hear your word and give us the courage to stand therein. In Jesus' name, amen. So who is this man, John the Baptist? Look with me in verses 1 and 2 to examine the first aspect of John as God's high priest. It says it this way, now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iteria and the region of Trachonitis and Lysenius, the tetrarch of Albania, Annas and Caiaphas being the high priests. Got to ask, I want you to notice very quickly from the very beginning, that Luke is a stickler for historical accuracy. So we have to ask ourselves, why does Luke begin this chapter with so much detail? I love what the book, The Hospitality of God, has to say about this. It says, Luke is sometimes referred to as a theologian of the history of salvation. Luke is the one most concerned to set the story of the salvation brought by Christ firmly within the context of ordinary human history and in close relationship to it. Why is this important for us today? Well, it's important for us because John reminds us that he began his ministry while Tiberius Caesar was emperor. History tells us about this man, Tiberius Caesar. He was a ruthless ruler who desired to master the world. In other words, Tiberius Caesar was a man who sought to rule the world as God himself, yet without truly knowing the God 
of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Where do we see this in the text? Well, look with me in verse 2a. It says it this way. It says, Annas and Caiaphas being the high priests. Now we have to ask ourselves, why are two high priests mentioned here? This reality highlights the social, political, and religious corruption of the day. The mention of these two high priests reveals the power of Rome over the nation of Israel. Ananias served as a power behind the throne, while Caiaphas was the one that Rome placed out front as the figurehead. Notice with me the problem this morning. The problem is that there is no priest appointed by God to represent him in Jerusalem. So how will God respond to this problem? Look at verse 2b with me. It says, the word of God came to John the Baptist, or John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Notice three things from the text this morning with me. First, notice what came to John. What came to John is quite evident. It is the word of God. Why is that important? Well, because prior to John's ministry, God was intentionally silent for well over 400 years. And as God's high priest, John did not speak until God had first spoken to him. It's a good reminder for us this morning that as servants of the Most High God, we don't have a right to speak on God's behalf until he chooses to say something. We, as God's people, have nothing to say until God chooses to speak to us. Why is it important to wait on the speaking of God, on God to speak? Well, it's, it's important because it talks to us about the difficulty of, of waiting on God and the importance of speaking on his behalf. Many of you here this morning are probably in a waiting place, a place where you are waiting for God to speak, to show up, to make something happen. Listen to me, and if you are in that place, you're in a good situation. Let me tell you why. Because Abraham waited as a pagan and foreigner until the voice of God spoke to him. Joseph waited as a forsaken prisoner for 13 long, arduous years. Moses waited as a fugitive for God to reveal himself inside a burning bush. David waited as a forgotten one. As his father Jesse called everyone except for him to stand before Samuel to serve as a prospect to be the next king of Israel. Daniel waited in faith while thrown into the lion's den. The three Hebrew boys waited in the fire until the fourth man appeared in the flames. Elijah waited in fear from the sight line of Queen, Queen Jezebel. Isaiah waited while enduring Israel's forgot, forgetfulness of God. Zechariah waited in silence. Elizabeth waited in her barrenness. Mary waited to give birth in the manger without having a husband. And here we find John waiting in the wilderness. Beloved, if you find yourself in a place of waiting, listen to me, you are in a good place with God. Why is that? Well, it's because God always does his best work in the crucible of our waiting. 
Let me say that again. God does his best work in the crucible of our waiting. Isaiah 40 puts it this way. Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is he weary? He gives power to the weak, and those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. Listen to it. They shall walk and not faint. I love how Big Mama talked about it in church growing up. She put it this way. When you understand that God is never late, you wait differently. (laughs) You wait differently because you know who you're waiting on. Notice with me what came to John. The word of God came to John. But not only that, number two, notice how John is described. John is simply identified as being the son of Zechariah. Don't, don't, don't overlook this. This is important. And it's important because it reminds us that John finds his lineage within the tribe of Levi and Aaron as a high priest. And much like Jesus, though he was a high priest, he didn't allow his position to negate his love for God and for his people. Thirdly, notice where God came to meet John. The Word of God came to John in a very specific place. And listen to me, I hope that you catch this because hopefully uh, this may be a shouting place for you. (laughs) Where did God's Word come to meet John? He came to meet him in the wilderness. Isn't it good news this morning to know that God's Word can meet you in the wilderness? Isn't it good news this morning to know that God's word can meet you in your wandering, in your weariness, in your wanting, that God's word can meet you in moments that you don't even expect to meet you? Why is this significant? Well, it's significant because the normal experience for John would have been for him to serve in the temple of his father, like his father, Zechariah. However, as God's appointed priest, John did not wish to serve in a corrupt system, so he went into the wilderness and renounced his priesthood. Remember how Luke talked about this in Luke chapter 1, verse 80? It says, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. John knew who he was. He wasn't just God's anointed high priest, but listen, John was also called to serve as God's prophet. Look with me in verses 3 and 6. It says, and he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. 
Notice John's prophetic message here. John's message is clear. It's found in verse 6. All flesh, Jews and Gentiles alike, Republican and and Democrats alike, shall see the salvation of God. In other words, in God's coming kingdom, every presentable obstacle that's placed in our way will be removed, and everyone will be equally, equally accepted by God and welcome before his presence without hindrance and without bias. Listen to me, when I, when I hear and see and think about this prophetic word from Isaiah, I think of a leveling, a leveling much like a bulldozer coming in and making the ground even, if you will. I love this because this speaks to two sides of our humanity. It speaks to our insecurities, And it also speaks to our pride. For those who may feel insecure and feel like you are forgotten or you've been forsaken, if you feel like you're in the valley, the the gospel of Christ is there to lift you up. It's there to give you a helping hand. For those of us, including myself, I include myself in this, who think more highly of ourselves than we should, there's hope for you too because everything that's exalted will be made low. All pride, all arrogance, anything that opposes itself to God's kingdom and his ways will be made low. How will the high things be made low and the low things will be made? Why is that the purpose of the kingdom? Because at the cross, everybody's called to be equal. So my grandmama used to say to me, in the church, there's no big eyes and little U's, right? Everybody's equal before the cross. Everyone is accepted at the cross. I think it's a good reminder for us this morning that when God shows up, every wrong thing will be made right in his presence. Every uneven thing will be made level, and every crooked thing will be made straight. How will this happen or why would this happen? Paul gave us a glimpse of the glory of Christ and helping us to see in Colossians chapter 1. You remember what he said about our Jesus? He said, he is the image of the visible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him. And for him, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. How are we to respond to God's preeminence? Look with me in verse 3. John says this, and Luke says this, he says, and he went into the, all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Notice the essence of John's proclamation. It is to be repent and to be baptized for the forgiveness of our sins. Why is repentance needed? Well, repentance is needed because we are all marked by the stain of sin. 
Romans 3.23 puts it this way, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Why is repentance necessary? Repentance is necessary because when we turn to God, we turn from sin. In other words, we can't turn to God without first turning away from our sin. Listen to the invitation that Isaiah gives us in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. It says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. What does true repentance entail? Look with me in verse 8. He puts it very plainly for us. He tells us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. To bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It's a good reminder for us this morning that repentance entails bearing fruit that coincides with our professed repentance. In other words, repentance must be tied to real action or it's not real at all. What does it look like for us to repent with no real action? Well, it looks like us saying that we are Louisville Cardinal fans, but looking like this. I think that's a picture of Jarvis Williams with the U on his chest back in the day. We buddies, so I can do that. I can do that. Yeah. I love this because it reminds us of the beauty of the gospel, that the gospel doesn't just something that we proclaim, it's something that actually we do, that we embody. That repentance is not just something I say, it's something that I embody, that our lives should actually be marked by fruit of repentance. Right? Fruit of repentance. That if I once struggled with a certain addiction or a certain way of life, that now that I have repented from that thing and I'm walking in a different life, my life should look different now than when it was when I was struggling with the addiction. Doesn't mean it's perfect, but it does mean that my life should coincide with the repentance that I say and I pursue. Do you, does your life bear these marks of fruits of repentance? Now listen, I know you said you're sorry to your spouse about how you responded to them in your anger. I know that you said sorry to your children or to your grandchildren. I know you said sorry, but does your life bear fruit of the repentance? Having a life that marks and bears the fruit of repentance means that once in my life when I didn't have accountability, I now do have accountability. When, when I used to run away from community and I, I now run to community. I, I, it doesn't mean my life is perfect, but it does mean that my life should coincide with the repentance that I say that I have done. For following after Jesus means to act on what he says. 
Remember what we said, the very first scripture we shared in Matthew 7? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Another word for lawlessness is sin. One thing I love about John is that John does not just tell us what to do. He also tells us how to do it. He's a good preacher. <laughs> Look with me in verses 10 through 14 to see John as God's preacher. It says, and the crowds asked him, what shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not exhort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. Notice the three specific demands of what true repentance entails. The first demand is that we're called to share. We're called to share. We're called to share what we have with those who are in need. In other words, we are to live our lives as those who are not blind or blinded to the needs of those around us. We're not called to live with horses who have blinders on. This reminds me of a parable that we'll talk about later in the Gospel of Luke of the Good Samaritan. You know, we do a lot of emphasis on the Good Samaritan as well we should, but there are also two other characters in that story, the priest and the Levite, who saw a need and neglected to respond to the need at hand. I want to put a pause here and just say one quick thing to encourage your heart. Not every problem is your problem in this world. God's not calling you to stop at every single uh, stop sign or homeless sign to provide the need. But when God is calling you to provide the need, respond to him in obedience. Every problem is not your problem. But there are some problems in your neighborhood, on your block, that God is calling you to be an answer to respond to the need that's there. Number one, we're, not call, we're called to share. Number two, we're not called to steal or take more from others than, than what's needed. In other words, we're to conduct our business with fairness and equity for all. This act of repentance reminds me of the rich young ruler who was a man who had great wealth and came to Jesus asking him, hey, good teacher, what good thing must I do? What commandments must I keep? Jesus tells him, and he responds in a negative way because he had great possessions. He had great wealth, and he didn't want to give. Jesus says, hey, give your money to the poor. You will have riches in heaven, and then come and follow me. We're called to share. We're called not to steal. Last one, this is where Pastor James is still working and still growing by the grace of God. We're called to be content. We're called to be content. We're called to be content with whatever we earn or are given by God. We're called to share. 
We're called not to steal or to take from others and this is what's needed. And then number three, we're called to be content. In other words, we're called to exhibit hearts of both gratitude and generosity. Gratitude and generosity. You know what we're not called to do? We're not called to live our lives like the parable of the rich fool who had property and riches beyond riches. And he said, listen, this is what I'm going to do. I'm so rich, I'm going to tear down all these things and I'm going to build up even greater things in my name. And God says to him, you fool, tonight your life will be called and I will be taking your life in the middle of your greediness. We're called to share. We're called not to steal. And last but not least, we're called to be content. I want to take two minutes and just say, uh, as I said before, this has been a real struggle for me, this call to contentment. And even as our church, and we've been planning for five years now, uh, starting in uh, April 21st of this upcoming year, we'll be a five-year church plant. Again, we came out of your, out of your fellowship. You planted us. Um, there's been a lot of things that has caused my heart um, to be discontent, if I'm honest. But one of the greatest gifts that God has given me in my discontentment is you. Because Midtown, Soldier Midtown, you guys have shown up for us as a church time and time again. Through your giving, through your pres presence, through your prayers. And I just want to take two minutes to say thank you. Because in my low places, when I feel like God has forgotten me or forsaken me, I'm always reminded by the love and the presence that I feel from this congregation. And I'm always reminded of God's provision for me that our church um, has a support, um, yes, from heaven, but also here in the city of Louisville that stems from you. And so for that, I do say thank you for your generosity in that way. Here we see in the text that being Christian is all, always about reminding ourselves of three things. Two things I put on the screen and one thing I'm just going to say on the stage. Number one, who I am. Number two, who I'm not. But three, got to remind myself all that he is. I have to remind myself who I am. I have to remind my, we have to remind ourselves who we're not, but we also have to remind ourselves all that he is. John the Baptist understood these two things very clearly. He understood who he was, and he understood who he wasn't, but he also understood who Jesus was. Look with me in verses 15 through 16. It says, as the people were in ex expectation, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not unworthy to untie, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and the fire. Notice, John knew exactly who he was. He knew he was a high priest. He knew he was a prophet, and he knew he was a preacher. But in the same breath, John also humbly acknowledged all who he was not. He was not king. He was not savior. And he was not the Messiah. I asked you this question in the beginning, and I'm going to conclude asking the same question. Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? 
If not, let me remind you, beloved, you are the saints of God. You are saints made holy by the precious Lamb of God. Listen to Romans 5, verses 8 through 10. But God chose his love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of the Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. You are saints made holy by the precious Lamb of God. But not only that, brothers and sisters, you are servants and friends of Jesus. Jesus puts it this way in John 15. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. You are saints made holy by the precious Lamb of God. You are servants and friends of Christ. But not only that, you are also adopted sons and daughters by the Spirit of Christ. Listen to Romans chapter 8. It says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is yet to be revealed. You are saints made holy by the precious of lamb. You are servants and friends of Jesus. And most importantly, you are adopted as sons and daughters by the Spirit of Christ. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn in Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.